Welcome to Everything Scary. My name is Lynn, and I'm here with my co-host, local celebrity. <coughs> sorry, sorry, international celebrity. Thank you. Matt McLean. Hello. <laughs> Every Tuesday, we release a new episode, mostly true crime, but we've also been known to cover a pandemic, a haunting, a super mad, super strong chimpanzee. We'll cover anything and everything scary. Please rate us five stars and join us on Instagram at Everything Scary Pod. Here we go. Okay, we recording? We are rolling. Okay, how's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty good. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about some murder. Yes. Add so, some levity. Do you ever watch Dateline? Yes. Okay. So the story that I'm going to tell you right now, it happened in 1979, so it was a long time ago. Okay. You told me you prefer the long ago ones, so that yeah. doesn't affect you emotionally, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> yeah. I listened to the Dateline podcast on this, and it's absolutely tragic, um, but it's also really interesting. So I had the Dateline episode, and it was a Keith Morrison episode, which like... Nice. Did he not host all of them? No. Oh, no. Okay. There's Josh Makowitz and then somebody else, okay. too. Um, but anytime you get Keith, it's like a yeah. golden kiss. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this episode was called The Haunting, and it originally aired on May 27th of 2011. Mm. Uh, but because I had watched this episode, I thought all the additional research that I was going to need would be a breeze. Mm-hmm. I'd just use the, the episode, I'd firm up some dates, get some quotes. Mm-hmm. But the more I looked into this case, the more empathy I felt for the survivors of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to give it all away right out of the gate, but I actually had this case shelved since October because the people involved in this story were re-victimized so many times over the years and it consumed their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know there's tons of cases out there that are like that, like the John Bidet Ramsey case, for example. I feel like that's, it's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. This yeah. case here was like, the Dateline was the only thing. I looked up their names in podcasts. I couldn't find anything else aside from a couple of like local articles from back in the day. Yeah. Um, so in October, when I was researching it, I ended up finding one of the victim's wives. And I sent her a message that basically said, I'm so sorry if I'm overstepping in any way. And if I don't hear back from you, I will never message again. Yeah. I just, I want to tell your husband's story but I felt kind of weird telling it without her permission Um, because of them constantly being dragged back into it. So when I didn't hear back from her, I just kind of put it away. Mm -hmm. But then at the very end of November, she wrote me back and she was thankful that I was handling it with such care and asked me to watch a couple different things along with the movie that her husband made. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, She gave me some clips um, that her husband had posted to YouTube. And so that's exactly what I did. I just watched and listened to all these things. Um, so I'm hoping I do this story justice um, because it really deserves it. And the survivors and the victims of this story are absolutely remarkable people. My sources for this story are thebaptistpress.com, the Dateline episode, The Haunting, about a half a dozen short videos on YouTube that Brooks Douglas, who was one of the victims, made regarding victims' rights. Okay. Uh, the movie that Brooks made called The Amendment, which was originally called Heaven's Reign. So if you're interested in watching it, don't spend hours looking for Heaven's Reign because that's what I did and it was <laughs> waste of a night. Um, it's available on YouTube for purchase or rental. Uh, the Oklahoma newspaper, CraigDailyExpress.com and CBN.com. Uh, and I'm going to give a trigger warning for sexual assault on a minor. Okay. I'm sorry for that. Uh, so here we go. The family that I'm going to tell you about is the Douglas family. And their actual story starts in 1979. But really quickly, before we get into it, I want to tell you a bit about their family. So the father was Richard Douglas and the mother is Marilyn Douglas. They have two children, a son named Brooks, who was born in 1963, and four years later, they welcomed a daughter, Leslie, to the family uh, in 1967. Richard and Marilyn had met at a wedding where he was the pastor and Marilyn was the wedding singer. So 
Richard Douglas was actually Reverend Richard Douglas. Okay. Uh, he preached his first sermon at the age of 16. By all accounts, the Reverend was a cherished member of the community. Uh, he ran sermons at the Putnam City Baptist Church. His wife, Marilyn, according to her daughter, Leslie, could have done anything she wanted to in life. She was extremely intelligent. She was a gifted singer, and she would even hand make all of Leslie's outfits for when she would compete in Miss Teen Oklahoma. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. That's great. But when the children were born, Marilyn's sole purpose was to raise Brooks and Leslie in a loving home. Mm-hmm. Brooks would later describe his mum as the seasoned spring. The season spring? Yeah, like she was just like fresh. Like, oh, okay, like new beginnings. Warm, yeah. Hope, yeah. The Reverend would often be at other people's homes. When they needed help or advice, he was happy to go over on his time and work through things. He would even go to McAllister Penitentiary and speak with some of the prisoners in hopes that he could help them turn over a new leaf. Wow. Brooks was an accomplished football player and a fantastic student, and Leslie, who was also a very gifted student, enjoyed spending her time by her mom's side, learning from her how to cook and sew, and they basically just seemed like an amazing family unit. Um, Brooks would even breed Doberman Pinscher puppies and ran a car detailing business to make some extra cash. At 16. Hustling. There's people in their 30s I know that aren't that (laughs) driven. Don't have that drive. Yeah. As well as going into the homes of others, the Douglas family had an open-door policy at their home. If you needed to talk, they would be there to lend an ear. So as I mentioned before, Brooks ended up making a movie about his life. Uh, At the beginning of the movie, it says in bold writing, this is a true story. It doesn't say based on. It says this is a true story. So I think most of these things probably actually happened. Um, This next part, I didn't write it in here. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I was speaking with Brooks' wife. Yeah. Um, so at the point that I wrote this into my script, I wasn't sure that this actually took place. Mm-hmm. And so when I messaged her, I said, did the snowflake thing actually happen? And she said, 100% it happened. Brooks remembered it really well. So I'll tell you what the snowflake thing is. Okay. But this absolutely did happen. So at one part in the movie, it was 1968, and the reverend is seen on a typewriter, and you can see him finishing writing his title page, which he then places on a large stack of paper. And it's titled The Lifestyle of Compassion. Marilyn leads over excitedly and she says, you finished your thesis. And then the parents go to a friend's house because the family is actually planning on moving to Brazil to do a missionary. So they were going to meet up with their friends and have a goodbye get together. And the children stayed home. When the parents arrived home, they walked in and the kids had made dozens of snowflakes. Like, you know, those ones that you... um, You fold the paper. You fold it in quarters and then you... Yeah. Yeah. So they had made dozens of these and they were all hanging up in the living room by strings and yeah... So at first, the parents came in and they were like really excited, like, oh, look at what you guys were doing. And then Richard notices that there's printing on all of the backs of the snowflakes. Okay. And he starts reading it. and It's his thesis that he just spent. Oh, my God. And like, so in the movie, he goes, Brooks, where did you get this paper from? And he goes over there by the typewriter. This is a typewriter, man. Mm, Like, you can't. There's no backup. There's no recalling that. There's no cloud. Oh, boy. So... I should mention that Brooks not only made this movie, but he also played his father in the movie. Oh, boy. Um, which I imagine was equally as cathartic as it was sad for him to drudge up all these memories. Yeah, really. Um, so when the father sees that his thesis has been destroyed, and Brooks does a really great job of looking devastated, like mm-hmm. you can feel it. Um, he goes and he sits down at his desk and he calls his son over and he embraces him and he says, the next time you're going to do something like that, please just check with us first. Which, as a parent, oh, oh my God, I'm throwing a plate Howard, at the wall. Yeah. I'm I don't like, have that kind of... Get tape <laughs> and, 
and pull all this crap off. And we'll, tonight we're going to learn about Christmas jigsaw puzzles. That's exactly right. Um, I said, which, if this is actually how it all played out, is an absolutely commendable self-control. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and Brooks's portrayal of him is very touching, especially because no actor could ever know Richard as well as his own son did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a really amazing job. And this whole movie really felt like a love letter to his parents. Once you know the story and that he's reenacting these scenes as his dad, it's pretty amazing. So they left and they spent some time preaching in Brazil. Brooks said it was the best time of his life. The family got to be together and they lived a very minimalistic lifestyle. Um, and it was just beautiful. They were right next to the gateway to the Amazon River. Okay. Nice. They literally lived out in like the rainforest. Wild. Uh, it was nice that they have these amazing memories that they spent together as a family. But unfortunately, that takes us to Monday, October the 15th in 1979. Uh-oh. Yeah. Here you go. Mm, here I go. Painting a lovely picture. Mm, sorry. Dropping the hand. Imagine just one day I just come in here with like a really nice story and like yeah, that's be- it. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're back at home in Oklahoma. At this time, Leslie is 12 and Brooks is 16. Like I said, it was not out of the ordinary for people to drop by the Douglas home. Mm-hmm. And while Leslie and Marilyn prepared dinner, Dad was watching Monday Night Football and there was a knock at the door. Now, where they lived in Oklahoma, it was called Okarchi. And as of 2021, the population was 1,157. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's not a high traffic kind of town. It was very secluded. Mm. (laughs) And Keith Morrison says, miles beyond the streetlights. Oh, my God. (laughs) Was that good? (laughs) That's really good, actually. (laughs) Um, So there's a knock at the door. Brooks went to answer it, and he did not recognize the man at the door. He was kind of rough around the edges. You would think in a town of like, you know, probably at that time, like 500, you would know the person. But he had a scruffy beard, and the man told Brooks that he was looking for somebody by the name of Mike Mitchell. Brooks said he did not know anyone by that name and asked the man if he had a phone number. The man patted his pant pockets and said he would be right back as he left the number in his other pants. Okay. To me, I was like, why is he traveling with old pants? Like, he hasn't washed them because there's a number in them, but... Yeah, and then don't you empty your pockets when you... But I just don't... Uh, do you have a pants? pair of old pants in your car right now? I do, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> with all your numbers Single in Single man it. about town. <laughs> um... So the man returned shortly afterwards, and he made his way to the phone. Brooks said he then heard the door open again, and he turned around to find a second man standing in the entrance while holding a double-barreled shotgun. Oh, jeez. And when Brooks turned around to the first man, he was looking right down the barrel of a three fifty seven revolver. Mm-hmm. The first man informed them that this was a robbery and to give them the money. Brooks had $43 on him, and he gave it up right away. They rummaged through Marilyn's purse and took whatever they could from there. I don't believe it was very much, if anything. Right. The family was then forced to lay face down mm. um, on the living room floor, and they hogtied everyone but 12-year-old Leslie. The man who had first entered was ripping all of the fun lines out of the wall and tore open drawers and cupboards looking for valuables. All the while, the man with the double-barreled shotgun had it fixed on the family so no one dared to make a move. The first man came back and grabbed Leslie, who, again, was 12 at the time, and the family listened in horror as they heard the man lead Leslie to her bedroom and the unmistakable sounds of both men raping 12-year-old Leslie. Sorry. As the family's, Jesus Christ. Uh, Marilyn was sobbing. I can't even imagine how helpless you would feel. And Brooks did his absolute best to soothe his mother. Mm -hmm. He kept repeating that it was okay and that Leslie would be okay. Leslie was then brought downstairs and was hogtied with the rest of her family. And then these pieces of actual garbage mm, 
enjoyed the meal that Marilyn had been preparing for her family. Oh, geez. Doesn't like that. I don't know why to me that really stings a little bit extra. It's like. Because we're not psychopaths. So when you think of committing an act like that and then eating afterwards. And sitting there with the family and eating their, I, I just, like the rape is obviously a billion times worse. But to me, it just sounds like such an invasion, like so. And it's the psychological toll. Right. That that's going to. Right. And I think they probably knew exactly what the fuck they were doing. Yeah. Um, the intruders argued with each other about what they were going to do with the family. They even threw out the idea that if they were to let the family live, would the family promise not to move for four hours, allowing these assholes a decent amount of time to get Mm. away? Of course, the Douglases agreed to that term. Um, But after they had kind of landed on this plan and uh, they were supposed to be allowed to live, things appeared to take a turn. Brooks said after two hours of this torture, the first man said to his accomplice, go get the car turned around and listen for the sound. Mm. Brooks knew exactly what the man had meant by the sound but he didn't believe that they were about to be shot still. Like, it's yeah. all surreal, I'm sure. Um, he said this happened to other people, but it didn't happen to them. So scumbag number one was left in the house still. And he said, well, I didn't want to have to shoot you, but... Mm. And then Brooks said he heard and felt himself being shot. Oh, my God. He then heard his mom screaming and another shot. And then another four shots followed. And then he heard footsteps running out the door. This part is so very sad. So take a breath. Okay. Um, this whole scene was also acted out by Brooks. He was his dad in, in the, movie. the movie. Yeah. Oh and it, shit, I forgot about that movie. Mm-hmm. He reenacted this horrendously traumatic night as his own father. Brooks shuffled on his stomach towards his mom and started trying to untie the ligatures with his teeth. He said, I love you, mom. I love you, dad. And his dad, not one to mince words, said, I love you too. Just get me untied. Mm-hmm. Then Brooks said to his mom, mom, you're loose. Your ropes are loose. Untie me. And that's when he said his mom looked right into his eyes and took her last breath. And just like that, this wonderful, talented woman was gone. Goosebumps all over my whole body right now. Um, Brooks then made his way over to his father and he told his dad he thinks mom has died. Brooks told him again that he loved him and his father responded that he loved him too. And then sadly, this cherished man was gone as well. Brooks would later say that he thinks when the reverend heard that his wife was gone, he gave up. Yeah. Brooks and Leslie had both been shot twice. Oh, sorry. You know what? Brooks had only been shot once. Leslie had been shot twice. And they were lying face down on the ground. Uh, Their whole world had shattered within such a short period of time. In the dark, Brooks's mind was reeling. He couldn't help but think about a situation that happened earlier that day. One of Leslie's cats had sadly passed away. And the Reverend had asked Brooks to take it down to the creek and dig it a hole and give it a proper burial. He specifically asked him to do this and added not to just throw it over the fence. But Brooks, being a 16-year-old boy, didn't want to bury the cat by the creek. He just wanted to throw it over the fence Mm -hmm. and get on with his day. Um, But now he wished he had listened to his father. If he had taken the time to do things properly, maybe he would have been able to sneak in behind these intruders. Maybe he would have had the opportunity to sneak downstairs and get a shotgun. He could have saved his entire family in his mind. he's playing this scenario, blaming himself. Right, unless he does that too. Later on, it's just... But now he was here, he was laying on the floor hogtied, and he was losing a lot of blood. Now and then he would call out to Leslie and she would answer so that he knew she was still alive. Um, And at one point he called out to her and she didn't respond. And it was at this point Brooks thought that he had just lost the remaining person in his family. But then Leslie was standing above him with a knife and she had retrieved it from the kitchen and she was attempting to free him. 
Can we just take a second and recognize this little badass girl? Well, I was just like, about that. What has she been through? And she yeah. freed herself. Now she's freeing her brother. Like she's absolutely insanely remarkable. Um, Leslie said that she just kept thinking, I want to live. I can't just stay here. They had both lost a ton of blood and Brooks carried Leslie to the car. And if that on its own, just isn't a testament to how wonderful oh, these the right, parents were. The phone lines were all pulled. Right. Right. Um, they were both still afraid that the gunman was there. So he ran as fast as he could. He put Leslie in the car and he was doing a hundred miles per hour trying to get them help. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Uh-huh. Um, well shot. <laughs> yeah. Well shot. <laughs> um, as they were driving, Leslie turned to Brooks and asked if mom and dad were gone. And he said, yeah, they were. And she replied, what are we going to do now? Are we going to go live with relatives? To which Brooks answered, let's just worry about getting better right now. (laughs) (laughs) They got to the home of a family friend who happened to be a doctor. Like perfect. Perfect person to go see. Uh, When they had first arrived, the family was startled and they were having a hard time believing what they were hearing. But when Brooks fainted in the living room, the doctor realized this was a serious situation. The doctor and his son carried the brother and sister to a nearby hospital. They dropped them off, and then they went to check on Richard and Marilyn. The children were rushed into the intensive care unit in Oklahoma City, and it was not a minute too soon, as one of the bullets had nicked Brooks's heart. <sighs> Jesus. <sighs> and he's doing all that shit. Carrying a sister. <laughs> and Leslie was shot, listen to this, well in the hog-tied position, through her arm, the bullet traveled through her back and exited out her stomach. A second bullet went into her back and exited out her chest. Oh, like, think of how small a 12-year-old body is, too. Right. And that bullet just ripping through and then Two her getting up and getting a knife. Yeah. Badass. <laughs> Absolute badass. Be um, like, so what are we going to do now, then? <laughs> she's, like, that's remarkable, She too. is it's remarkable. Looking, the whole family's remarkable. Looking beyond that day. You just wait and see what Brooks accomplished. Like, if you were writing this stuff for, a, like, a fictional movie, mm-hmm. you would be like, that's too much. Wow. Like, nobody can do that much. Mm-hmm. Um, at around 11 p.m., the police swarmed the Douglas's home. Lynn Stedman was the sheriff in Canadian County. So Canadians in, mm-hmm. in Oklahoma. I was like, Canadian. I thought we were in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, as it turned out, there had been another home invasion in Hennessy, Oklahoma, which was not very far from the Douglas's home. I map quested, and it was about a 31-minute drive. Wow. Mm-hmm. So Dale and Patty Cameron were the homeowners, and they had been left alive. After the criminals had left, they had run to the window and saw that the getaway car was a banana yellow Chevy Malibu. And I was like, who's getting away in a How, yellow car? Yeah. But then also Ted Bundy had a bright yellow beetle. So like, oh, did maybe he? it was a lot more common back then, but <laughs> not the point. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Big yellow car. Uh, so when Leslie heard about this family, she thought to herself that the reason her parents were gone was because these two monsters had raped her. If they had left the previous victims to live, the only thing that made the Douglas family different was the rape. And now she blamed herself because in her mind, if it had not been for her, her parents may still be alive. Oh God, that's awful. Right? That's terrible. It's heartbreaking that her mind even went to this place Mm -hmm. instead of blaming these pieces of actual human shit. So with the tip of the yellow Malibu, they were actually able to trace the car back to an oil field within a few miles of the Douglas home. And apparently two of the employees had abruptly quit their jobs that day and left the site in a burrowed yellow Chevy. Mm. So our pieces of garbage are <laughs> Stephen Hatch and Glenn Ake. Yuck. Yuck. Uh, the two had, for some reason, convinced themselves that they were being set up at their place of employment for a parole violation. So they figured, oh my God. They figured they had to get out before they closed in on them. Really, there was no one looking for them. Yeah. 
Um, this is something that the two concocted all on their own. Um, sounds like the rambling of a paranoid drug user. <laughs> yeah. And that is exactly what we had here. Wow. After leaving the oil field, both men went into town, emptied their bank accounts to the tune of about $500 each. And with that, the pair went on to buy alcohol, cocaine, and meth. Wow. Aren't cocaine and meth kind of the same thing? Like, uh, Cocaine and crack are the same thing. Don't they all just make you like... <laughs> you know, I really don't know. Well, <laughs> you should do your research be better. Honest, you know what? I'm, I'm a poor researcher. <laughs> you're right. We really got to get into it. I mean, if your job at the morning show hasn't called for you to know <laughs> the difference between cocaine and meth, I don't know what you're doing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we can land on the agreement as to why these two were so paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Coke, so, meth, that'll do it. Yeah, that's a perfect concoction of paranoia. Um, the first home that they had burglarized is where they got the double-barreled shotgun from and more than $1,000 in cash. Mm. Uh, so it was quick and easy to figure out exactly who we were looking for. The problem was that at this point, the murderers had roughly about a six-hour head start. Okay. And that yellow Well, yeah. Malibu. So October 18th of 1979 was the day of Richard and Marilyn's funeral. And there was more than 2,000 mourners, which is more than the entire population now, Um, including the governor at the funeral. But sadly, Brooks and Leslie were unable to attend. Like as if these kids haven't had the shit kicked out of them enough, like Mm -hmm. because they had not been discharged from the hospital yet. And uh, Leslie and Brooks were kept in the same room and an armed guard stood watch. No one knew if these madmen were going to try to come back and finish what they were unable to accomplish. Yeah. It took over two weeks, but finally Brooks and Leslie were able to go home. But where was home? Yeah. They stayed in a residential neighborhood in a home that was owned by the church. The day that they were released was Halloween, and Brooks remembers that they were still under the watch of an armed guard, and they had trick-or-treaters come to their door. Uh, And he claims that they were adult trick-or-treaters. And seeing these adults with masks on set him and Leslie off. Yeah. The guard even pulled his weapon and told the trick-or-treaters to leave. They hadn't meant any harm, but Leslie and Brooks were so terrified, and rightly so. PTSD? For sure. Yeah, no shit. Uh, In the Dateline episode, Brooks said that this was when the whole thing became real, was that when he went to the cemetery and he saw two freshly covered graves and grave markers with their parents' names on them. Oh, shit. That's you right in the heart, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, He said he fell to his knees and he felt as though he had lost absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. And he had. In order to pay for the children's medical expenses... Everything in their childhood home was auctioned off, including their house and their dog. Oh, their dog? Mm-hmm. Which is just gutting to hear. Nowadays, the community would come together and set up some form of like a GoFundMe Go for, yeah. um, for such a tragedy. But sadly, this was the only option mm. to pay for their medical bills. And to add to this tragedy, Brooks and Leslie would never live under the same roof again. Oh, that's sad. Mm-hmm. Leslie went off to live with relatives on her mother's side and started at a whole different school, while Brooks decided that he wanted to finish out his senior year of high school at the same school with all of his friends, and he ended up living with friends and fellow churchgoers. Okay, so... How do you go back to school? Like, your own school? Like, that would just be so hard. Like, I don't know if I would ever want to look at anybody that knew what happened. As a 16-year-old, too, like, thinking about your parents just being gone, like, I just, I would sleep for weeks on end, I think. Like, I just, I don't know how they... But you know what? These people are better than me. Yeah, so. they were obviously raised by amazing parents. I'm telling you. you. Know? <laughs> oh, shit. Um, so where are the bad guys? So here we have Glenn Burton Ake and Stephen Keith Hatch. These two were 24 and 26, respectively. Mm-hmm. Like I said, they both had been in trouble with the law, 
and they had just gotten each one another fired up, believing that somebody was after them. <laughs> Glenn Ake would later be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. So likely he got it into his head that somebody was after him. They were them, after him. And it was not hard to convince Stephen Hatch because as you will find out, Stephen Hatch was a follower. And a bit of a dummy. Yeah, a bit of a doofus. Um, as I said before, the Douglas home was the second home that they had invaded, but it sadly would not be the last. They both called relatives in Oklahoma and let them know that they were on the run for killing the Reverend and his family. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can't imagine how that call would go. Yeah. Like, hey, mom. <laughs> oh, hey, Stephen, how you doing? How's your trip going with your friend? You still working? <laughs> like, my mom would be like, you need to turn yourself in right now. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so they abandoned their yellow Malibu and they took a bus to Memphis. This would be about a seven and a half hour car ride. My map quest went crazy Ooh. for this this case. So I'm going to tell you a lot of times. <laughs> the length of distances traveled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So I imagine by bus, it's a lot longer too. Like Brutal. seven and a half hour. Imagine these two just tweaked out. Oh, they yeah, probably right. haven't showered. Ugh. Like people on the bus were probably like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I said anybody who came into contact with these two were probably just terrified. Uh, once in Memphis, the two spent $1,000 over a three-night period, which in today's money would be just over $4,100. Mm-hmm. They spent this money on motel rooms, drugs, and sex workers. Oh, so if you put that into perspective, they basically robbed these two homes and killed these two amazing people for $1,043, right? drugs. Brooks had the $43. The other family had the $1,000, which is basically what they walked away with. And now they blew all of it partying. They destroyed a family so that they could have a few nights of fun. It's just pure evil. After they left Memphis, the two made their way to Louisiana, looking for work in an oil field to make some honest money. When they couldn't find jobs, they hitchhiked to New Orleans. New Orleans. How do I say that? New Orleans? Uh, I think you just say Nolens. Nolens. There you go. Okay. The two hitchhiked to Nolens, <laughs> where at a bar, Glenn Ake met Virginia, who went by Ginger Keefe. Okay. Well, in Nolens, <laughs> that sounds natural, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, Nolens. For sure. Uh, they ended up finding jobs at a carnival, but soon after starting their jobs, they were fired when Ake got drunk and fired a gun into the air. And that is just simply not something you can do at a carnival. <laughs> you know what kind of a piece of garbage you got to be to get canned? From a carnival? Okay, now you've just lost all of our carnival workers, Oh, I Matt. apologize to the carny folk. <laughs> My bad. Uh, wow. So the two men hit the road again with Ginger in tow. Oh, boy. Which makes me curious as to who is it that Ginger is turning down if this dirty gun shooting <laughs> drunk guy who has no job and is bussing it around is the guy she's falling for? <laughs> <laughs> like, who do you got to turn down to get to that guy? Oh, shit, yeah. Well, these two now found themselves destitute, likely from all the drinking and sex workers. Mm-hmm. All they had left was Marilyn Douglas's credit card. And it was anyone's guess when that would max out or be shut off. Three weeks after the murders, these three decided that they were just going to take a bus as far away as they could based on the money that they had left. <laughs> good, so here's really... Good plan. Listen to how funny this is. Though. So they found themselves on a bus ride to Lumberton, Texas. Now, one thing I found a little bit interesting is Okarchi, Oklahoma to New Orleans is an 11 hour and 18 minute car ride. Okay. But Okarchi to Lumberton, Texas is only about eight hours. So these geniuses actually moved themselves about three hours closer to where it was that they had committed the crime. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> it's like I it's the farthest it. away from here, but that's not where you did the crime. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Um, when they arrived in Lumberton, they very literally hopped off the bus and directly in front of where the bus had stopped was a house. And they decided that they were going to do what mm. they did. Another home invasion. Yep. So Ginger would just casually wait outside. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So the pair lay in wait for the occupants of the home to return. And when he did, he was with a friend. Dale Randall Kokanese was 35 and he was with Yerby Land III, who was 27. Both men were hogtied once again, and after they robbed the home, both men had hoods put over their heads and ache shot and killed both men execution style. Holy shit. Ruthless. They also then stole the Dodson 280Z. 280Z? Z. 280Z. Well, Dodson is probably... Uh, American? That? I think so. I don't know. Who knows? I'm sorry. Just say car. Just don't DM me about it. Just say car, <laughs> truck, or van. <laughs> a sports car That's in right. Wallens, Yeah. Uh, that was parked in the driveway. Once the crime scene was discovered, they had a description of the car that was stolen, and they put out a bolo. A bolo, Do you nice. know what a bolo is? Yeah. It's, what? Uh, like a, it's like a- Be all on the lookout. Bolt. Yeah. It's like a, everybody- it, The description goes out, I think. You don't right? know as much about bolos as you no, do about No, I apologize. <laughs> what does it be on the lookout? You got it. Um, knowing that the twosome had grown into a threesome, which is just like a fun little, oh. well, it's not a threesome. Oh, okay. Hatch isn't involved in any of it, but there's three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately now they had a car and they also had stolen a gas credit card from that home. So that would no longer be an issue. So they headed west to California and then east to Wyoming. <laughs> oh my God. All did, over did the they don't know what a map looks like. <laughs> um, all while looking for jobs. I'm sure after all the drugs and driving for so long, these two must have just looked wildly menacing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> potential like, <laughs> pulling he out shoots a, out a gun. A wrinkled cover letter. <laughs> uh, so they ended up in Bags, Wyoming. While at a bar, Ake got physical with Ginger. He roughed her up and then he left her at the bar. So out of spite and anger, Ginger decided that she was going to tell the bartender everything that she knew. Oh, good. And the owner of the bar decided that this needed to be called into the police. And that's just what they did. And of course, by this point, Ake and Hatch were on the road once again. Mm. Now, just a side note. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> I love these side notes. Um, they had met Ginger in New Orleans. So I looked up the distance between New Orleans. <laughs> of course you did. And Bags, Wyoming. And to drive mm-hmm. a car, it would take 20 hours. Ooh. So now Ginger was in Bags. And I have to wonder how she got home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, what they say, if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. <laughs> <laughs> now, the two men were in Colorado. All right. For one reason or another, the car that they were driving ended up getting the attention of a police officer. And when it ended up coming back that that exact car was associated with multiple murders in Oklahoma and Texas, cops tried to pursue the vehicle. But the Dodson was a quick little sports car, and it was easily able to escape the pickup trucks. With the cops? Yeah, which yeah. seems wildly irresponsible. Yeah, how are you going to, like, yeah, you can't catch anybody in a pickup truck. But you can help move friends. Yeah, that's right. It'd be the worst. <laughs> Top of the pickup truck. Hey, help me move. So um, the hunt was on, and the duo was in Colorado in November, and the nights were freezing. So now they had no money, and they were starting to get hungry. So... Unfortunately, they resorted back to what they do best. However, this time would be a bit different. Mike Pundella owned a ranch outside of Craig, Colorado. Uh, they had gotten the car stuck at the bottom of Mike's driveway, so they decided to force their way into his home with their guns drawn, <laughs> as one does. Um, trigger warning here for animal cruelty. Aww. Sorry. 
Um, I hate this, but in order to show Mike how serious they were, they shot his three-legged dog and killed it. Okay. In future, if there's a dog shot, you don't have to mention his three legs. Okay, Haley. <laughs> three-legged dog. That's terrible. I have to find out all the details or I get trouble. Jesus. <laughs> but how Mike decided he was going to defend himself was brilliant. Okay. He was just overly hospitable. And he gave the men as many beers as they could handle. Oh, and nice. as we've seen, these two are not the type to pass up alcohol. Mm-hmm. So they gladly accepted it. And as soon as these buffoons drank too much and passed out, he escaped. <laughs> oh my God, it's just that easy. <laughs> like, I just wish they had gotten into the beer before the dog, though. Yeah, shit. That would have made it perfect. Uh, he went right to the sheriff's office and he met with investigator Jeff Corvo. And he confirmed the identity of the men. He warned the officers to be careful because on top of what they had shown up with at his home, he also had his fair share of firearms in the house with oh. ammunition that the duo now had access to. Uh, at 10 a.m. the next morning, which was November 21st of 1979, police swarmed the ranch. As they were approaching, cops say that both men jumped out the window and started running in opposite directions. <laughs> Corvo said to this day he is surprised that that was the decision that they had made. Yeah. He had expected that they were going to be in an all-day standoff. Mm. They had everything they needed in the house. Right, like a final stand or something. Yeah, they had guns, they had food, they had everything. Like Instead, they decided that they were going to run away on foot, and Ake fell down. (laughs) 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 And at that point, they both surrendered. Because also, they're in Colorado. Like, you don't even know where you are. Yeah, right. Their car got stuck at the bottom of the driveway in November, so Mm -hmm. I imagine it's probably pretty snowy. Yeah, right. Like, you morons. Bill James was the prosecutor at El Reno Courthouse in Oklahoma. When he got the news of their capture, he said he very literally jumped up to get the papers started to have these guys um, exon- extracted? No, exonerated from Colorado and be brought back to Oklahoma. Um, it's not exonerated. I think it is, uh, what's that called? When you extradited? And that's actually what I have written down. <laughs> <laughs> I just went with my own brain instead of my notes. And that never works. <laughs> but he knew that, so he had to get up and get them to Oklahoma because he knew that Texas would also want to try these guys for their murders. Right. And Oklahoma wanted to have first crack at them. Um, so as soon as they were given the green light, Sheriff Lynn Stedman flew to Colorado to collect them in. Ake was sent to a high security prison while Hatch stayed at El Reno Jail. On November 22nd, 1979, which also happened to be Thanksgiving of that year, at the request of the criminals, Ake and Hatch were in the sheriff's office making their uncoerced statements. (laughs) These guys are just... (laughs) They should run for president. (laughs) Hatch went first. Uh, He pinned the entire thing on Ake, which... Which uh, one would think that you would do, yeah. Um, But he did admit his roles in the crime. Uh, and shockingly, when Ake went in, he also said it was all him. He said that Hatch was just along for the ride, and it was his own brain that came up with all the murders, and that he had been the one, the sole one who acted on them. Wow. Real stand-up guy. <laughs> um, he went on to request that he got the death penalty. He stated that he wanted to die by lethal injection, and he wanted it to be as soon as possible. But he also wanted enough time to see his family and his friends before he goes, because apparently, Ake thinks this is any way you want it by journey. <laughs> 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 Making deals. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to kick you in the face to death. That's yeah, how right? you go. Um, after both confessed to these crimes, they decided to plead not guilty. <laughs> it's just a circus over there. <laughs> wow. 
Uh, Hatch's trial went first. These trials, to me, anyways, seemed like a huge waste of time and money. Sure. Not to mention poor Brooks and Leslie having to relive the single worst night of their lives in detail. Um, They had their confessions. They had ballistic evidence. There were witnesses, including Brooks and Leslie. And they had Ginger Keefe's statement, who at this point, I'm sure, was somewhere between Wyoming and Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Grab MapQuest. Hatch testified in his own defense and his trial only lasted three days. <laughs> During his trial, it was brought up that he was only a follower in these crimes. It was brought up that he was not responsible for the deaths. But it did seem, however, that Hatch was actually the ringleader in executing the home invasions. And more specifically, he was definitely the one who pushed for the second break-in at the Douglas home that fateful night. Wow. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Yay. Oklahoma means business. Yeah. You know what? His other option was Texas. <laughs> yeah. Either way. <laughs> yeah, either way, you're <laughs> burnt to it, Chris. <laughs> um, Ake's trial started in the summer of 1980. He was under guard's watch as he was unpredictable and would have outbursts. Uh, and he had even been ejected from his arraignment in February of 1980 for disruptive behavior. Do you know the difference between an arraignment and a trial? Uh, I believe the arraignment is when they're like, okay, how would you like to plea? What's yeah, going on Yeah, so they here? go over all your charges and everything yeah. like that. And then, yeah, your trial follows. Um both Leslie and Brooks took the stand and identified Ake as the man who had shot and killed their parents. Both were very well-spoken and very matter-of-fact. Wow. When I'm Ake was... Going on, on this, like, on, going on the stand after that? Like, so what, it's only been a couple of years, right? In one year. Well, that's so it. So Leslie's 13 now. So she's... Uh, yeah. They're kids. Yeah. Jeez. Kids. She's definitely a baby. Yeah. Um, when my kids are 12 and 13, I'm still not going to let them go to sleepover. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um... When Ake was found guilty, he was sentenced to a thousand years for what he did to the children and to death for what he did to their parents. Good. And he was sentenced to death and sent to McAllister Penitentiary, which ironically was the same penitentiary that the Reverend used to go to to try and help the inmates. Jesus, what is going on? It's like these, it's so different ends of the spectrum, you know what I mean? Like between good and evil. Totally. Yeah. And just like. Like the best of the best and the worst of the worst. Yeah. Uh, After the convictions, Leslie was thriving. She was a great student. She was a cheerleader. She had plenty of friends. Uh, And when Keith Morrison asked her how she was so well-rounded, she said that her mother had once said to her, if anything ever happened to them, that she wanted Leslie to continue to live and be the best version of herself. She said at the time she was horrified by her mother's statement, but she had kept that with her throughout her life and had always pushed through. That is like incredibly amazing. And so mature for her to take that in and just compute it the exact way that her mom meant it and like not, you know? Yeah. And to actually like do it. Right. Right. Like to do things, to get out of bed. Right. A year later is is remarkable to me. And I don't have it written in here, but she said that her body looked like a map because like all the surgeries and like the way the bullets went in, she had just scars all over her body. Like, so she was reminded every single day. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm sure you are anyways, but it was, she had physical reminders too. Yeah. Yeah. So Brooks, however, kind of became lost and he just sort of lost a big picture of things. He went to about six or seven different colleges. He would either go and then either quit or get kicked out and he'd be on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. But he did end up graduating eventually. And then he went on and he passed the bar and became a lawyer. Oh, wow. Yep. He was a Green Beret in the Special Forces. Oh, my God, Brooks. (laughs) And in 1990, at the young age of 27, 
Brooks decided, just on a whim, this is like what happens to me when I'm like, you know what, I am going to buy those Ugg boots. <laughs> Brooks is just a way better person than me. He decided that he was going to take a shot at being elected into the Oklahoma State Senate. Oh, you know, just, you know, we'll see. I mean, you graduated the bar. You didn't have a family. Like, he must have paid for that all himself. <laughs> like, I would be like, I, there's nothing I can't do now. Yeah, right. How old is he here? 27? 27. So he would go on to da-da-da, and he won. <laughs> <laughs> Brooks would be the youngest senator in Oklahoma and would go on serving 12 years as a state senator and was absolutely crucial in groundbreaking changes that were made for victims' rights or families of victims' rights. Wow. The criminals actually at this time in 1980 had 23 enumerated rights. What does that mean? Like 23, like numbered. So there's, they have 23 rights in the... What is like it when you have like the constitution? constitution. Yes. Okay. So they have 23 rights. Like, you know, you're, you have the right to an attorney, you have the right to remain silent, you have all that kind of stuff, right? So they had 23 rights according to the constitution and the victim had zero. Uh, yeah. Brooks would say that the law would step over the body of a victim to read the criminal as rights. Yeah. In his time in Senate, he would pass more than 20 pieces of legislation that were signed into law. Like what a legacy. Who is this person? Yeah. Like, I don't even think I could be in, no offense, I don't think I would be allowed in the same room as this man. (laughs) 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 But you're here, so we're on the same level. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) If you're the victim of a crime, you're not even as close to as covered as you think you are. When Leslie and Brooks were able to get up onto the stand during the trial, they would have to give very direct statements Uh, about the night in question. However, they did not have the right during sentencing to give what is now called a victim impact speech. Mm. They weren't allowed to say how they will never see their parents again um, or talk about how scarred they were mentally and physically, all the first that they would never get to share with their parents, how their kids would never get to know their grandparents, how they had to auction off their home and everything within their home just to pay for their medical bills. Yeah. They didn't get to say how Leslie had to spend her 13th birthday orphaned and in the hospital. But at that same trial, the convicted criminal was able to have all sorts of character witnesses come up and talk about how great they once were oh, and how they've yeah. just gone down a bad Bullshit. path. Right? In one of the short videos that Brooks uploaded on YouTube, he says that every year he receives calls from people who say that they're not allowed to give a victim impact testimony. And he says a lot of people don't know how to invoke their right for this. He also tells an anecdote about an old couple who were lying in bed one night and three high school students came in and beat the couple. When they left, the couple called the police and the kids were found and arrested. Three months later, they were sitting on their porch when the same three kids walked by and they had never been informed that the kids were out. Oh, God. Brooks said that when he heard this story, he went right to work passing a law that gives the victim the rights to be informed when a criminal in their case has been released or have parole hearings. It's just weird that some laws, I don't know, maybe I just thought that was always, like, since yep. the law started where people get released from jail, if the the person that beat the crap out of you gets out, you know what you, they give you a heads up. The next paragraph here, I says, I says. I says to him, I says, he's a pretty <laughs> good guy down here by the dock, so I'm telling the story. I, I says, says to him, I says. I says, here comes Jimmy over here. <laughs> I say, uh, the victim has a right to know where this criminal is being held or if they escape. These things all sound like simple things that we have taken for granted nowadays, but they weren't rights the victim always had. Wow. Mm -hmm. They were not even allowed at that time to attend parole hearings. Jeez. Leslie and Brooks were charged 
$500 for the rape kit that they used on Leslie. Oh, my God. When Brooks had gone to get his car after weeks in the hospital, it had been impounded because it was used to obtain evidence for the prosecution, and he had to pay $117 to get it out. Jeez. Yeah. <sighs> what uh, the hell? Don't, I know. Like, the I, rape I thought- kit, like... When you said re-victimized, to me, when I think of that is just like, you know, the news doing a story on it or it being back in the public eye again. Their lives this were This is way worse. Right. Like, I've never heard of this stuff right. before. I've seen where, oh, you know, like Dateline wants to do an episode of it. And then, okay, we got to relive this like, tragedy again. But uh, to, to be charged for your own rape kit is one of child. the most disturbing a things. A child. Like what? I just, I can't wrap my head around it, honestly. Um so he paid this $117 on top of everything, tens of thousands of dollars in medical costs that they, as the victim, had to pay. Mm. I will say here, not to sound obnoxious, but I thank God for the free healthcare in Canada. Yeah. I realize that it is a business transaction, but can you imagine handing a bill to these kids when mm. their parents had just been killed and charging this little girl for her rape kit? Yeah, really. I, I would have to quit my job that day. I'd be yeah. like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Now they have victim compensation funds. That can go towards medical bills, funeral costs. It can be used for time off work, therapies. So one should, if you're ever a victim of anything horrific, you know, hopefully it never happens, but you should keep a list of your expenses and your receipts um, if someone ever finds themselves in that unfortunate situation. Jeez. One thing that I found cool, and I think this is just in the States because I assume that most of our stuff comes from our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but these victim funds in the States, it does not come from tax dollars. When a criminal is convicted of any crime, part of their sentencing is to have to pay a certain amount into the victim compensation fund. Yeah, and the, like a restitution almost. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that just to show you how monumental Brooks was in changing this for the better. He was the youngest state Senate to serve Oklahoma, but he made his mark. Yeah, no doubt. No like, doubt. Like medal of... Freedom, uh, everything. Just How are you give, this person? Like, I know. I'm just, I'm blown away by him. Um, over the years, though, Leslie and Brooks would have to testify nine more times. Um, and the whole thing took up to another 17 years of their life. Why not? Oh, because is it every other state? No. State trials? No, yes. Well, they would have to do it in Texas as well. But Glenn Ake will go to find out. I'll, I'll tell you right now okay. here. Um, in 1985, uh, Ake was awarded a new trial because he was not offered a therapist at the time of his original trial. And the fact that he had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic was not taken into account. Ugh, oh, poor guy. I know. Well, let's, I cannot believe I know. that. He needs more he rights. Didn't have a, poor little guy. Wow. Um, so seven years after being sentenced to death plus a thousand years, in February of 1986, Glenn Ake's new trial began. <sighs> his defense was going to go and try for not guilty by reason of insanity, uh, they still had his original confession in which he sounded sane and without any remorse. <laughs> Good. For his part, he was a far cry from the man who was once removed for being a disturbance. He sat quiet the entire trial and looked down. Leslie and Brooks would have to relive that night again, which they did, and he was still found guilty. But this time they took his death sentence off and he was sentenced to two life sentences plus 200 years. <laughs> which is, you know what, to me is kind of like... Good, because he wanted death. He didn't want to sit in jail. Remember when he said that? Yeah, he, right. So good. And sit, plus, hopefully, word gets out her yeah. age. Exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, that's, uh, you know what? I'm normally, yeah, fried these don't pieces do things, of crap. Yeah. But you know what? For this, you know what? Throw him in Gen Pop for yeah. a day. Yeah. Slap some lipstick on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so the gunman, the one who acted out the actual murders, was taken off death row, but Hatch was still on death row, which now would complicate things because it almost certainly would result in another hearing for Hatch. Right, because why would, the, if he, if the trigger man... He's yeah. clearly the, the aggressor. Yep. Um, as they were leaving the courtroom that day, when Brooks walked out, he was feet away from Ake, and he found himself reaching for a deputy's revolver. <sighs> Um, but thankfully, the prosecutor saw what was going through Brooks's mind and grabbed his arm and stopped him from doing something that he couldn't <laughs> oh take back. Oh, my God, Brooks. Brooks is a badass. Um, I know, but you think of the legacy and how it could have just gone away with that but simple. He, uh, and, like, he's still a human. He might be superhuman, but he's still a human being. And, like, you see that person that just took everything from you. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And now he's taken off death row. And I, I assume that they were happy with him being on death row. Yeah. And I don't know. How many juries would be like, uh, you know what, Brooks, you're going no, to jail. No, obviously not. They <laughs> yeah. don't, the, the victim doesn't stand for anything. Like, it's so, so bizarre. Um, Brooks was still so full of anger and rage, and he just wanted the pain to stop. Uh, so he ended up arranging for a meeting with Ake. Oh. Yeah. He said he was lucky because had he not been in the state Senate, he wouldn't have been granted this meeting. But it was what he needed. He said that he felt that when he went into this meeting, one of them wasn't going to leave the room um, when they met. And he did not care which one made it out. He just wanted the pain to stop. And if Ake ended up killing him, so be it. And the pain would stop. For sure. When he went into that room, he was so angry and Ake was actually very apologetic. He said he only did these violent things when he was drunk and high, but admitted that was no excuse. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, He asked how Leslie was. And he wanted her to know how sorry he was. And he seemed sincere. Brooks asked him why. And Ake said there was no reason. Oh, that's the got to be just because all of this lost devastation for what? Like if you just didn't have 17 beers that day, like my mom would still be here. Yeah. Um, he said he didn't know why and it was senseless. Brooke told Ake that he wanted him dead. It actually shocked him to hear those words come out of his own mm. mouth. And it was in that moment that Brooks did the very last thing that he thought he could do. And he forgave him. Oh, God. I hate you, Brooks. You're so you much phenomenal <laughs> person. <laughs> no, right? I'm like. Oh, my God. I, tell you, I, like, I had to reach out to his family because I'm like, I don't even feel like I'm worthy of telling this story. Like, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, so he made the decision to forgive him. And he said when he made that choice, he felt physically like a weight lift off really? of him. Yeah. He said that he felt it physically. Um, he wanted his life back, a life that his parents would have wanted for him. Mm-hmm. Like he said, he was so badly injured. He said in one of his videos, actually, that he could have just lied on that floor and died. He could have. And then people would have thought, oh, well, he just died of the gun. It's not as though he just gave up. Yeah. And he's like, if I had have just lied there, I would have just been giving up. He's like, I just wanted to get off that floor so I could live. And that's not what I'm doing right now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's passed a bajillion laws. Uh, yeah. God. Reforming victims. It's like, God, rights. I gotta do something. God. You know? <laughs> so yeah, he decided that he wanted to live the life his parents would want it for him, and that's exactly what he did. Brooks had tried to also meet with Hatch, but had been rejected. And 18 months after forgiving Ake on August 9th of 1996 at 1217 AM, like, why are you doing <laughs> it that at that time? But Leslie and Brooks were in there to witness Stephen Keith Hatch be put to death by lethal injection. It is weird they always do it at midnight, eh? It's so weird. Yeah, I don't know if they do that. Like, on top of everything else they had to be through, they had to drive at midnight? Like, that's... <laughs> he was 48 years old at the time of his death, to which I say, 
fuck off. Get the Goodbye. Hell out. Yep. Because I'm nowhere near as good as Brooks. But Ake would live incarcerated until he died of natural causes in 2011. His attorney said that he had suffered a heart attack. He was 55. Uh, when he died, Leslie would go on being the badass that she was. She got her teaching degree and would go on to be promoted as principal <laughs> and would be married with two kids of her own. Come on. Leslie, killing it. I don't know how you, I just, I'm fascinated that you don't just stay on the floor. Right. In that situation like Brooks, like that you've got that literal and figurative fight in you. Yeah. And then to go to the legislature. Right? <laughs> wow. So after two failed marriages, Brooks would go on to marry the love of his life, Julia. Third time's charm. Yep. And she is lovely. Um, of all the many things that Brooks accomplished in his life, he would say that his greatest accomplishments were his children, Callie and Brody. Aww. And I have goosebumps again. That's sweet. <laughs> this man brought so much light into the world, as did the rest of his family. And I'm so sad to say that at the age of 56, after a six-year battle with cancer, Brooks passed away. And is now reunited with his parents. And he was actually put to rest in the same cemetery. Um, I don't want to leave this on a sad note. I like to sandwich things in with some good stuff. (laughs) Um, This is what Brooks' wife had to say about him. Julia would write next to a picture of a beat up hat that said life (laughs) is good. The best way I know how to sum up Brooks is this beat up old life is good hat. Brooks wore it and epitomized it daily. He loved well, and he said, I love you with my whole heart almost every day. He told our kids daily he loved them. Even in his last days when he could hardly speak, he still said, I love you, to close friends and family. He lived well. He worked to have a positive impact in the lives of others and in the criminal justice system for victims' rights. He loved good food, good friends, and good wine. He suffered well though through six years and many painful days. He almost never complained, and in brackets, she wrote, seriously. Despite the heartbreak and trauma of losing his parents early on, he still looked for and created joy in life. For anyone who has experienced trauma or loss, Brooks recommended trying to put as many good memories in between you and that tragedy that happened to you. Metaphorically or actually, put on your life is good hat and make the most of your lifetime. Live well, love well, suffer well. As Brooks wrote for the amendment movie tagline, we are capable of more than we ever thought possible. And that is the tragic but absolutely amazing story of the survival of Brooks and Leslie Douglas. Like, you know the story of the mythical phoenix that rises through the ashes and is a beacon. More believable than this story. That's crazy that he's able to, like, that is just, I mean. And then going back to the Dorothy Stratton story, like, only the good die young. Because, like, yeah. the, the man just, like, in such, 56 years is not a long time. And, like, he just jam-packed it with good things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he struggled. He went to all these different colleges, and he had two failed marriages. Like, he was human. Mm-hmm. But when he made that decision to, like, you know, metaphorically, like, get off that couch. and Yeah. I, ugh, I don't know. And then, where's the, and cancer. I know. You know, all and that. Suffered for and six years. And cancer just doesn't give a shit. Yeah. You know? Wow. Yep. So that's that story. And my God, like there was more than a couple of tears shed over writing that script. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Wow. All right. It's all so senseless. You know what? Next one's going to be a little bit lighter. I'm going to do something a little fun because. Yeah, let's do one of those light murder stories. <laughs> like diet murder. Diet murder. <laughs> all right. Until next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>